just so you know. Um, would they? No, they wouldn't do penance. There's a difference between repentance and penance. Penance is, in some, at least historically, to make satisfaction for sins. So you've got a lot of sins. The Lord forgives those, but in order to kind of complete the act, you have some sort of penance. Now, I'm almost convinced that you could, you could receive penance in a gospel sort of way. I mean, what's wrong with the priest saying, why don't you go say ten Our Fathers? I mean, that would actually be good for us to say the Lord's Prayer ten times. Now, if you understand that in the sense that your sins have been forgiven and this is just the natural part of the Christian life, you say your prayers. Now, obviously, if you take that in a law sort of way, that my sins aren't fully forgiven until I do this, then you've gone down the wrong path, which is really where Rome is at with the idea of penance. It's not fully complete until you do this act of penance. And some of the penance, we would even say, are, are abominations of the scriptures. For instance, saying ten Hail Marys. You know what I mean? But if you said to someone, hey, you know, you got a lot of sins. If someone was in confession and, and you said you got a lot, and they said, yeah, I got a lot of sins. I forgive you all these sins. Okay. And then you say, go, you are free. Part of that freedom doesn't mean that you're stagnant in the Christian life. That's the great, that's the great misnomer, at least from people who don't come to confession, is they think, I'm free. Uh, it's like back to square one, when in actuality it's not like that. It's like when Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. That changes your life so that you live a different way now. And part of that may be to say your prayers. That being said, I think we would have to be very creative. Yes. What kind of penance do we have to talk about? Because saying in 10 our fathers brings back the memories of growing up in my Catholic friends. Yeah, right. Yes. Let's flip it off. Right? Like, you know, sometimes I will not talk about it. Exactly. That's right. Yes. Yes. And that's why, that's why penance is not part, you're exactly right, it's not part of the Lutheran tradition for that very purpose. It's just, because it's always understood as part of satisfaction for sins. I just do, I'm just going to say it, and it's going to happen. But if we could find a way to encourage people to not only be forgiven, but then to live forgiven, which includes your prayers, that would be, uh, you know, that would be a great win for the Lutheran Church. And probably, I would never call it penance. I would never call it penance because the minute you say that, uh, you know, half the group then won't come to confession. But part of confession is the, the last line, which was actually sadly lost in the new hymnal in LSB, is that go you are free, which freedom entails a new life. I mean, just to be forgiven, that's not the last word the Lord has, but the forgiveness entails cleansing of sin, and then a brand new life, which means the things you did before you don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're welcome. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And that, that, yes. And strictly speaking, that's not even penance. That's just the Christian life. I mean, if someone comes in and they said, I've robbed a bank, you know, 
you can't as be a faithful pastor and grant, grant absolution knowing that they'll never go to the bank and return the money. I mean, that's just repentance. The turnaround means you make wrongs right. If you've cheated on your spouse, part of that is you have to go to your spouse and say, I've cheated on you. Or if you kill someone, you have to, you know, I might forgive someone, but then the minute we get up off the chair, we'll walk into the police station. That's just the Christian life. And to say, I want to be forgiven, but I don't want to make wrongs right, means you're not really repentant. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Completely agree. Did you hear the story about the guy that was, it was on 40, it was on 60 minutes. I'm becoming an old man. I like 60 minutes. Oh. Well, here's the thing. I was the one that told him. He didn't see it. Yeah, you, you saw this. You didn't hear. I'll tell you, Faye. Okay, so. It's just you and me right now, okay? No, there was, well, it's redundant, but it's a good story, so I'll tell it anyways. There was this guy who was, like, in the mob, and he killed many, many people, went to prison, and he was on 60 Minutes. They interviewed him. He got out, and they said, the guy asked him point blank, do you think you can go to heaven after committing all those murders? And he said, yes. And he said, why do you know that? Well, because right after I got out, I went to a priest, and I told him all the stuff I'd done, and he forgave me. And they said, what kind of penance did you give? And he said, say, ten Hail Marys or something like that. And he said, do you think that was enough? And he said, yeah, because the priest said I was forgiven which is fascinating. That's a man who understands absolution. He'd served his time. Wrongs were made right. He was let out. He was absolved. And that guy, I mean, that, you know, there's certainty there. So that's the way confession works. It doesn't matter what kind of sins you have. People have big sins and little sins and many sins and no sins. But they're sins and they need to be made right. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's some tact involved. <laughs> uh, and there are some things, there, and here's the distinction that needs to be made. There are some things where sins have been committed that violate, I mean, essentially violate the laws of the state. And so it's bigger than just you committing a crime. It's you committing a crime and also violating the laws of the state. For instance, if you rob a bank, You've, you've sinned against two folks. You've sinned against the Lord, all those people you stole money from, and the state who says, don't steal or you're going to prison. So that's where wrongs need to be made right. Now, of course, you know, even in your sleep, you have evil thoughts about people. You know, you have, you have you, you, all day is filled with stuff you shouldn't be thinking and shouldn't be saying and shouldn't be doing. Not all of those are the types of things where you need to go back to the person and say, you know, I'd be on the phone all day. <laughs> That was a joke. But it's true. I mean, just keep a list someday. I challenged the seventh graders to see if they could keep a list of all their sins. I mean, just keep a list someday of what, what you've done. And not all of those are things where you need to go back. If you really think that person was not wearing a nice outfit and you're like, that is so ugly, you probably shouldn't go back and tell them, I confess. And by the way, you were ugly. You know what I mean? 
But if, but if you violate laws, just if you go above and beyond what the Lord would ask you to do, like you cheat on your spouse, that's against the law. If you steal money, if you murder, if you, then you have other parties at play that you need to, you need to, um, you need to bring justice to. Okay? So there is a distinction. Thinking a bad thought doesn't necessarily violate the laws of the state. You've sinned against the Lord and against that person, but the Lord can square all that up. But there are other things where you need to go and make wrongs right, and that's just part of repentance. Repentance is either full blast or it's nothing. There's no partial repentance. Either you want to make wrongs right or you don't. And to say, I've sinned, forgive me, but I don't want to go to the police and say I committed murder is not repentance. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> the teachers both have put sins up there, but then it's kind of a, a work right. in progress to get them to realize that we're all sinners. And you know, it would be a great exercise. Actually, what would be, you know, you see this all the time, like people will write their sins on a sheet of paper and then they drop it in a burning pile of leaves on Good Friday. You know, some of that is a little cheesy and some of it's very good. What would be interesting is to bring those first graders on Good Friday into the church and one by one absolve them. So they've not gone through confession, but they've said, Here are all the, here's all the things I've done during Lent, and then bring them in and say, I absolve you of all of your sins. Go, you are free. That would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Do you think, um, I would be anxious to hear what you think. Uh, in my, at least in, from my perception, perspective, shame plays a, plays a greater role in um, kind of agonizing kids than guilt does. And frankly, for adults too. 
you're more upset about stuff because your sh- shame is stronger than guilt. And this is very prominent like in Africa. I mean, if you go to Africa, it's, a, it's a completely a culture of honor and shame. I think we have two. Yeah. That's right. But they're just playing the same game yeah. all their friends are playing. Right. It's really shocking to me. I'm like, I stuff that yeah. kids shift to other people. Well, I, I think they do feel the same, but they won't admit. I think that that's that still there. Right. But they don't know how to deal with it. They don't want to deal with it, so they get angry and then right. But when you think about it, especially when you live in community, it's such an individualistic thing to say that shame doesn't matter. I mean, you can feel guilty, but when you shame somebody, you instantly have shamed someone outside of yourself because someone else is involved. Or, and what I mean is in the church even, when you're part of community, if you cheat on your spouse, you not only shame yourself, you shame the community because that's not the way community lives. And that's, um, that would be helpful. And he talks about the early church in here. That's the way the early church was. It was completely honor and shame. If you did something that was sinful, you shamed the entire community. But the restoration of those folks is so much more glorious when you realize that even shame can be forgiven. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, sad, the reality is, and people don't realize this, is that sin shatters community. Regardless of what the sin is, it shatters community. And, it, and yes, right. Yeah. 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 
Well, and you can't, it's a lie to say we're a Eucharistic community and not to think that way. It's a lie. Because a Eucharistic community is what, we say this to all the confirmation, we say this to all the new members. You go up and you stand around the altar and you look at each other and say, you may not like that person, but when you come up here, everyone's equal. And if something happens to one person, that breaks, the, that breaks community. But community can be restored, which is why you have private confession and absolution. That's the restoration of community. Because people have, People have sins that shatter community on so many levels, divorce, little sins, big sins, whatever it may be. But the goal of absolution is it not only forgives the sins, but it restores community once again. It, it makes the bond even tighter. If you're a Eucharistic community. No. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know what you just saying. Yeah. That's all I really get for that still. And for her saying, right. out and go. But I feel like we don't love people like, like, like Jesus. Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, without, without our presupposition of who they are and what they've done, and we start knowing these things in our head and, and I, picking and, up our own. Yeah. Mind. That's right. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. What's fat? You know, Ray Newberg. Everybody know Ray Newberg? Great guy. He said we were sitting down in the lounge having a cup of coffee. A couple, well, this was a couple months back, and he said um, we were talking about having the Eucharist at every service. And he said, I remember when I first became a Lutheran and when I first joined St. John even, we had the Eucharist twice a month. And then he said, now we have it every week. And I didn't think it would do anything. And he said, our congregation, he just did this. I mean, community, Eucharistic life, everything that that entails has gone up. And I would propose to you, and it would be a thesis just to test, but it would have to be tested by you, by you folks doing it, that the exact same thing would happen if everyone was going to confession. Because you're right, it's not your business. But everyone's got sins that can be absolved, and that restores community in such a way. It, it restores community that's shattered, that needs to be restored to go to the altar to live the Eucharistic life. That's why confession usually happened before you came to the supper. You went on Saturday night to your pastor, confessed your sins, then went to the altar. So the community was restored when you knelt down at that altar. I mean, it would transform this place. It has, even in the past three months. I mean, I can't tell you. Bruce and I were just talking about it. I said, it's like... It's like a new day around here. And part of that is because I'm convinced we have the Eucharist every service. 
In fact, we have it on Thursdays. <laughs> and sins are being forgiven. I mean, every week people are coming to confession. That transforms community. That's what it's all about. And, and someone made the comment about defending the woman who had, you know, once, she, once the community knew about it. I mean, that's the thing that people don't always understand either. They always think that their pastor is going to hold it against them. It's not about you and me. It's about you and the Lord. And the moment someone's been caught in sin, regardless of what that sin is, the moment, let's just take the woman who got pregnant out of wedlock. Is that a sin? Yeah, it's a sin. Can you be forgiven? Yeah, you can. The moment she's forgiven, I am her biggest advocate. You will not speak about her. Because and, and, you know, that happens in all communities. I'm sure it happens here, you know. But the minute it's forgiven, you're her biggest advocate. And I'll defend her. I'll do, if anyone speaks ill of her, I mean, I'll call them out because that's not how community works. We should all call them out. We should all call them out. That's right. And not in a hateful way, but just to say, that's, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said to people who have said to me, would you believe what so-and-so? And my response is, everything's been forgiven. And when everything's been forgiven, that actually means it ceases to exist. The reason I don't go home and tell Abby about your sins, I mean, frankly, I don't even tell her who comes to confession because she doesn't want to know. But the reason I don't tell her is because I don't remember. There's this great gift of, like, divine forgetfulness that the Lord gives to pastors I literally can't remember sins that have been confessed. But you shouldn't, because the Lord doesn't remember, so there's no reason on this earth that I should ever remember either. And so someone, you know, I had someone in who stood up and said, well, let's talk, and I said, talk about what? Well, uh, no, talk about what? There's nothing to talk about. It's done. It's completely done. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Well, it's just, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) What fun is there in that? Come on now. I'm kidding. Go ahead. I will never do that again. Forgive me, mother, for I have sinned. That's all right. All is forgiven. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of circling with what you're talking about. I have ne- I've never until reading this thought of the ten plagues being beneficial mm-hmm. to the children of Israel. Yeah, right. Yeah. For the for the for Israel, for, Israel? 
Yeah, I think very much so. Um, I think your first point is a good one. It's what people often think the Lord did was he's having fun destroying the Egyptians. Exa- yeah, right. And part of it is he's not even for- he's not forcing them to do anything. I mean, this is this is the this is the misunderstanding is that the Lord is trying to force Pharaoh to be one of his own. He's not going to force you to do anything. So he finally says that you know the the text for um, the ten plagues ends with and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But actually, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's not that the Lord is doing the verb of hardening his heart. The way it reads is Pharaoh hardened his heart unto the Lord. So he lets Pharaoh have his way. Okay, so that's the first. This is not about the Lord destroying Pharaoh. This is about Pharaoh saying, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. And the Lord finally saying, okay, you can have your way. Which then, this is a great lead into confession because what that's all about is he's not going to force you to come and confess your sins. Even on Sunday. Let's just take Sunday. Let's take it out of private confession. He's not going to force you to confess your sins on Sunday. He's not going to force you to leave your sins at the altar. But you can if you want. You can if you want. And if you do then there's probably going to be hell to pay. But it's not because the Lord has forced you into that. It's because now you've essentially said to the Lord, I'll bear the weight of my sin. Everything Jesus took on the cross, I can bear the weight of that. And what you, then what you have to do is you have to be able to die on a cross for the sins of the entire world. Even if it's a little sin that you say, I really don't want to give that up. And I realize there's a distinction between, your, you know, let's just take, well, there's a distinction between your sin of whatever it may be and the Lord dying for the entire sins of the world, but if you're not ready to give that up, then what you've said is, let me have my own cross. What the Lord wants to do, and this is sometimes why, you know, the law can come and shatter people in a sense. He wants to, in a sense, have your sins utterly destroy you so that you can't help but come back for absolution. That's why sins are so tough. Some are easy, some are tough. But especially the tough ones, you know, you cheat on your spouse and you desperately love him and then instantly you say, that's destroyed me. That's the way sin works. But the goal in all of that is that it destroys you in such a way, or as, as he says here, um, I don't even know what, he, what word he used. The word that theologians use is the nihilizing work of God. He nihilizes you. He, he in a sense, destroys all the sin in you. Yeah, like makes you nothing, so that you're completely empty and you come back and all he can do is fill you with his good gifts, which is Matt Harrison's bit about you come to the altar with an empty sack and he fills it up. Why do you come to the altar with an empty sack? Well, you had crud in your sack before you confessed your sins, but now you walk up the stairs, those have been absolved, and all he does is wants to put gifts into you. That's all he wants to do. And that's what he did with, that's what he did with the Egyptians. He's trying to show them that really there's no way to live without him. And eventually they say, no, really, we're going to be okay. And he says, okay, I've got to keep going. I gotta, this is shake the dust off your, off your feet. The Lord's not trying to be mean when he tells his apostles that, but he says you can only work so hard. If, you, you know, if, if you're caught in a sin and you're not ready to confess it, and we try and try and try, eventually we've got to say, we just can't do anything right now for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, but this just talks about the unreality of 
mm-hmm. here on Earth. And um, when you talk about saving communities, it's you have to focus so much on community because yeah. everything else around you is saving right. and untruth. That's right. Um, it's just, I mean, to be mentally free of the evil imagination so that they could just live a different life mm-hmm. is no different than what we do on a daily basis. And that, yeah, I mean, that's that's well said because that's, when he comments on the early church, that's not a throwaway comment at the end of that section. That was life for the early, the entire world around them was anti-reality. I mean, reality is Jesus and his gifts. That's reality. It was completely anti-reality. And the goal of the early church, specifically the catechumenate, which I'd like to talk about before we're done here, because we're going to do it here, was to bring people into communion with reality. This is reality. You're a damn sinner and Jesus forgives your sins. And to, and, to, and to, in a sense, what did he call it here? The, the window of perception? Is that what he calls it? I mean, you've got this, you've got this, I, what's it called? Doors. doors of perception. Window, door, whatever. It's an opening. <laughs> the doors of perception. I mean, that's like Pastor Nelson's faith goggles. You know, when you become a Christian, you see things differently. You see things differently. I mean, just take this Northern Illinois shooting. This, you know, I heard people up and down the hallway saying, I cannot believe this is happening. And people were distraught yesterday. And it's not that I'm unfeeling or uncaring, but in one sense I just say, yeah, okay, that's the way the world is. Is it right? No, it's not right. Is it right that a guy who's 44 drops dead in his house? No, it's not right. Are we surprised by that? No, we're not surprised by that either. That's just the way the world is. But the great... The great rescue attempt is the Lord brings you into the church where this is reality. This is reality. It doesn't matter if you get shot on campus. It doesn't matter if you dropped it at 44. This is reality. And he wants to save you from unreality. But the tragedy of our church and Lutheran churches as well is the dispensary with the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. It's interesting. I sat next to a visitor um, recently at my church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said, I love it here because you actually speak the truth. Uh, he, he said, I'm so glad to find it. I've visited a few churches. Yeah. And he said, he actually forgives sins here. And um, these things that I recognize from my youth. Yeah. He said, I travel a lot and I go to all these churches that don't even have that anymore. Right. All this, like, hey, I had a bad week, God. Right. But he, um, and that's like what Joel Osteen titled. I wrote that in my book, Joel Osteen, right here on the mar- I'm serious. <laughs> I, I saw that. And they were talking about, and he, the, the interviewer was asking him about sin. Why don't you try? He goes, and Joel goes, we all, everyone knows they're sinful. They don't want, we don't want to talk about it. They know. Right. So we don't have to talk about it. Right. And I thought, no, that's exactly what you're talking about. It, it, was, the, it was a false god. That's right. I, I thought that's the tragedy of our generation. Well, maybe not just our generation. Yeah. Israel. Yeah. But that we, as, Lu- as Lutheran, half of our congregation don't right. even. The, um, this, the church I grew up in, I use it as an example because it was so bad. The pastor, always, this is every week, this was his absolution. And I didn't figure it out until I was about 13 that I'd never been absolved. He said, we would always confess the regular confession out of the, out of the hymnal. And then it got changed to, you know, he'd write these confessions like, Lord, I had a bad week. I spoke ill of others. And I would read through these and think, you know, there's some things in here I haven't done. The great thing about our confession is you can't escape it. Sin against you in thought, word, and deed. That's you. 
But he would always say, upon this your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, can now forgive you of all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So he basically was like toying it in front of you, like, I can now do it, but I'm not going to. And he never, I mean, yeah, it's like, and I don't think he was evil. He just wasn't smart. I mean, how can you say that? And then, so anyways, there's great joy in hearing. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm just calling a spade a spade. He wasn't that smart. Um, that's just, you know, there's great joy in finally hearing, I absolve you of all of your sins. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Right. More than anyone, probably more than than you, actually. I mean, we're ha- we, now with these eighth graders and seventh graders going to confession. They're begging us to confess specific sins. I mean, they're just and they should. They they should. I mean, I had one kid. In class, this is in front of the whole class, one kid picked a specific sin, and he said, in class, yeah, I do that, can the Lord forgive that? This is in front of 26 students. I'm like, whoa, yeah, he can, actually. And, and these kids are just dying. You can see in there, when I say to them, now, you don't need to confess, or don't confess anything in particular, they look at you like, you're not going to give me the full shot. They, that's what they want to do. They know they're sinners. They're, next time, I think so. I just don't want any parents saying you're, you know, yeah, I mean, we don't make anyone come. We have, but out of 26 kids, you know, 24 want to come. And some are not Lutheran. Really? Okay. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Full service. Wow. Yeah. So when he when they when he gave Jackson back to my brother, all three of my kids all had to be like, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that was the back right. they were supposed to be convinced he had just been like, wait, there was a thought of that. Yeah, right. That's right. And I said, oh, yeah, you're right. He's like, Mom, but there, there wasn't anything in there that said it was church. Right. And, like, I, I kind of laughed out of it about church, our teacher, or 
symbolism or anything with my kids. Mm-hmm. I just thought, I'm, I thought to Michael, well, It's, you know, it's very funny, though, even from, a, <laughs> even from a very young age, I mean, kids get that. We were just talking about this last night, how Emma calls, you know, a fork, a brush. I mean, it's like, is that the Little Mermaid where the woman, the woman, the mermaid, whatever she is. Yeah, Ariel. I've actually, I've actually, yeah, I've actually never seen the movie, but I was reading a book on postmodernism, and they used all these movies, and that was one of the movies they used. I know. Dinglehopper, but she doesn't know. I mean, she can say it's a brush one minute, she can say it's a fork the next minute, and she gets thank you screwed up with please and whatever. But there's one thing she never screws up, and that uh, that is when she enters the church, we can point at different images. Like she'll open up the hymnal, and the first page she'll see the cross and say Jesus. Flip to the next page, there's no cross. She keeps going. She'll and her great thing is she likes to look at the images in the bulletin. That's Jesus. I mean, there's no doubt in her mind, that's Jesus. So even from a very young age, kids are accustomed to their... I mean, now she knows... And here's the sad thing. I've probably been in the pew with her twice since she's been born, back at the seminary. Um, So I'd love to see this sometime. But she apparently, during the liturgy, you know, we sing, uh, Holy, 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 the Lord's about to come. And the very next words are, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Before we even do that, we're singing the end of the song too. She puts her hands together and puts her head down. Because she knows the Lord's Prayer is coming. Now, she's 18 months old. So my first question is, why isn't she getting the supper? My second question is, because <laughs> she, well, we'll talk about the, she knows the pattern, and she knows it's Jesus. So, you know where my uh, cards lie. Uh, anyways, but that's why I'm not the bishop. So, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> go go to page 168. I just want to I'd like to talk about the catechumenic cuz I promised Bruzek I would. Um you know part of what this all stems from and I think you guys would all agree is that confession and absolution in particular is just foreign to kind of who you are as 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 Lutherans, and you admitted this when we first came in, that's just not our tradition, at least for the past 50 or 60 years. Part of what we try to do with new members is, from the very first day they walk in, we want to make that their tradition. And now, we, of course, we have many people that come in that were Lutheran or that, weren't, that uh, you know, weren't of a sacramental tradition. And so either they say, that's not Lutheran, or they say, I've never seen that before, I don't know why we do it. What we need to do is utterly transform people in such a way that when you walk in the church here, this is just who we are. And actually, our new members are some of the most faithful at coming to confession because they get it for 14 weeks. That's all we talk about. And they say, wow, that's the Christian life. I'm coming. Now, Peterson makes a, makes a plea here at the end, or at least uses an example which should be a plea, on page 168 where he talks about uh, the very last paragraph, following the biblical precedence of exorcism and the ten plagues and the cleansing, the pre-Constantinian church. You remember Constantine, church is legalized in 313 A.D., 314, somewhere in there. The pre-Constantinian church. So this is the early church he's talking about. 
develop practices that continue to be modified and adapted as Christians prepared to embrace the radical new submission to God's sovereignty that, plakes, that takes place in the country of salvation. What it was doing was, it wasn't just saying, come have coffee for 10 weeks and we'll make you a Christian. Christians were not born, but they were actually made in the early church. This was a process. This took two or three years. And it started all the way back to, started all the way back with inquiry. I think I might want to be in on this, but I'm not quite sure what it's all about. And then you came in for two or three years and you were trained in what the Christian life was all about. And then right before your baptism, you got real intense catechesis, which was all about what this Christian life meant for you and for your family and for the community. It was all about community. And then after your baptism, then you had another, you know, eight or 12 weeks, depending on where you were, of catechesis and what had just happened to you. Now, I would propose that in postmodern culture, we are very similar to the pre-Constantinian church. What people, what people need, <laughs> I said this on Sunday, they're lonely and unloved. That's precisely what people felt or needed in the early church. They were lonely and they were unloved. And they were about to be killed. And what the church did was it gave them a place of community and a place of love where not only they could feel uh, no longer alone or no longer unloved, but also where they could experience the, the gifts of Christ, which forgave their sins and strengthened community. So here's what we need to do here at St. John. We need to transform, I mean utterly transform, the way we do catechesis for new members and new Christians. And this thing's got to start from scratch. It can no longer be 12 weeks and come on in because people are not modernists. It's not about coming in and saying, here's the catechism, learn it. That's not it. They want to know why this makes a difference for their life. They want to know how they can be no longer lonely and no longer unloved. And so I think at least in the next year, and you should think about, one, how you feel about this, and two, where you might have a part in this. I think in the next year, maybe even sooner, we're going to actually implement what he's laid out here, this historic four-part catechumenate, where you start off by saying, I don't have a clue what this is all about, but I'm going to come in, on, I'm going to come in and see. Inquiry. And then you may go for eight months where you're trained by lay folks. You guys could be catechists. You guys could say, here's what the Christian life means to me. Here's what the scriptures have meant to my family. Here's how we feel loved at the altar. Here's how, you know, we went to this church down the street, and my kids went, what is that? And then before you're baptized, then the pastors come down for about eight weeks, and we're going to teach you all the dogmatic stuff. Here's baptism. Here's the supper. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the creed. Here's the office of the ministry. Here's the Christian life. And then after you're baptized, you're not done. The great tragedy is all these people get baptized or received as new members, and we never talk to them again. What we need to do is form them in such a way that they can't, they can't help but come and be part of community. I don't mean volunteer at the, soup, at the you know, soup dinners. I mean you can't wait to step foot in these doors. That's what Peterson proposes as the natural consequence of a Eucharistic and a confession and absolution kind of community. That's just who we are. And I think that's what we're going to do. Um, so just begin to think about that and be ready for it because sooner than later you're going to see and you're going to hear about changes and how we do all of this. But this is, going to be a, this is going to be very much in the way or in the spirit of the early church. We're going to make Christians. We're not just going to bring you in for coffee. 
we're going to form you into the people that Christ would have you be so that, you know, two years from now when you have 20 other women in here who had never been members of here before and we say, yeah, we should all be at confession, those 20 women all say, yes, and we are. That's what it needs to be. Okay? Yeah. You changed the conversation like two seconds. Mm-hmm. I love that first line, salvation is a power like this. <laughs> That's right. That's huge stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's Christian spirituality as he calls it. You need to, when you walk out, you need to be able to see the Lord saving you in every part of creation. I mean, it's bigger than he creates and he leaves Adam and Eve in the garden. It's bigger than that. He actually wants you back. And, and the, great, the Lord's great win will be at the end of the day, at the end of days, when he recreates creation and it's eden plus heaven will be better than eden it will be better than eden and you can't even imagine that i mean just imagine walk i mean you can imagine from the text walking around in the garden with no shame and no guilt and no sin in utter intimacy and love with those around you free to do whatever you want i mean that's eden and heaven will be eden plus it'll be better than that No, huh? They're um, they're like uh, S class. Yeah. And it is um, it's it's as if you're entering the New Jerusalem, and there um, there's a river, a partial canyon of this river. Right. And all Christians are inside, and it's lined up for you with the throne. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Where's it? This is St. Mark's Catholic Church. It's do you know where the camp house is on Lindsay? It's right behind the <coughs> Now. That's right. You know, in the early church, this is helpful just to see because it plays along with what you just said, this idea of the new creation. The greatest line from the Passion. The whole time, every picture you see of Mary, <laughs> this, is, this is like, this is it. That is the Christian life. Every picture of Mary, you always see Mary holding Jesus. In the Passion of the Christ, Jesus is almost all the way to the cross. And Mary comes out to Jesus. And Jesus holds Mary. It's a reverse Theotokos. It's a reverse God-bearer. And he says, woman, behold, I make all things new. That's it. And the early church got that. And the way they got it was Easter vigil. Make sure you come. That's the service of the year. That is bigger than any other service here. This is it. This is when the Lord makes all things new. All these pagans who had been in the catechumen for years, who were not Christians because they hadn't been baptized yet, all stood outside, men and women, naked, separated, in the cold of an April night, March night, whenever Easter was, and all of a sudden the deacon would say, the doors, the doors, and they'd open up the doors, and these folks would walk in, and from the chill of a March night, they'd walk into this warm place that was representative of Eden. There were were animals. There were mosaics on the wall. It was humid. You could feel the warmth of the water. You looked around, and it looked like paradise. And all of a sudden, you'd then walk down into the water, three stairs down and three stairs up, and you had just been made into a Christian. And now, when you were once outside, now you're inside, and this space, which was representative of Eden, now belongs to you. We don't have any of that in our church. Not that we need a huge baptistry like that, but we can teach people into that. 
That's the joy of the catechumen. You teach them that you were once outside of Eden and now Eden is yours and heaven will be Eden plus. It will be better than Eden. And frankly, the altar is about as close as you get right now. The altar is the altar is Eden plus. It's better than Eden at the altar. You're in, you're in more intimate communion with Jesus himself than Adam and Eve were in the garden. That transforms people. It's transformed me. I hope it's transformed you. Yeah. Oh. What else? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it's going to take. It just takes towers fall down. <laughs> and That's right. Economies. I don't know what it takes. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, I just feel very, in, I don't mean, to think of, I think we all need cleansing. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You become a believer, you're unplugged, and you're like, wow, this is what it really is. Yeah. Uh, I guess I don't know. I don't feel ready for it. Well, and I don't think Egypt was either. I don't feel as a community ready for it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we're a community. Well, we, you know, that may be true. Well, it'll always be true. I mean, there will always, there'll always be people who claim to be part of... If we were community, everyone would be in church on Sunday. If we were community, everyone would tithe. If we were community, no one would speak ill of anyone else. But we're not. Now, part of that is you're never going to escape that until the new Eden. And we have, to, you know, we have to, in a sense, play the hand we're dealt. And part of what we're trying to do, though, is to make... It used to be the norm was anti-community. What we want to make it now is the norm is community and the exception is anti-community. And I think in, in that respect, we're moving in that direction. You, what we want, here, and, and I don't mean this in a law sort of way. I don't mean like we want to get after folks. We want people, though, who don't want to be part of community to actually feel like they're not because they need to become part of community. I don't mean we bang on them and say you can't come. That's not it. But they should feel like outsiders or they should feel like they're the exception. Because for the longest time, you guys are all very faithful folks, and you guys, I think, have felt like you were the exception. I come to church every Sunday. Not, every, not everyone else comes every Sunday. I give 10%. Not everyone else gives 10%. The Eucharist is the center of my life. It's not that way for everyone else. What we want is for you guys to say, we do these things, and that is who we are as a community, as St. John. And you cannot be running with that, and that's fine. But you're not the norm. And that, you know, what that takes, I don't know. You know, people say, well, numbers are down. Yeah, because people are realizing that this is a community. And you can stay and be in on it, or you cannot. And we want to do everything we can to keep you here. But eventually, it's like 
and I don't mean to equate those people with Pharaoh. What I mean to equate them with is the idea that the Lord will finally let you have your way. If you really don't want it, he'll let you have it. He'll let you do what you want to do. So that's where we're going. That's why the Eucharist is so important. Because even those people who are on the fringes or who are outside, Eucharist can actually bring you back into community. That's the reason it's there. So I hope that helps a little. That's... Yeah. Being okay to be as vulnerable and intimate as Yes, that's that's true. Where it's just a comfortableness mm-hmm. instead of, you know, the always to do thing. Yeah. Kind of looking around. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's how the world works. You're always trying to one up everyone else. I mean, just, you know, just look at higher education. It's always about who's on top. Who can you be better than? But in the church, you should come here and be able to drop all your barriers and say, I am no different than that person next to me, and this is flipping great because we're all going to the altar. That's what it's all about. There's nothing better than standing at the altar, and I've made this a practice now. I actually hold the host in front of my face when I speak the peace because, frankly, there are some people that don't want to say peace back to me. And there are some people that, even in my old Adam, I don't want to say peace to. But when you look through the host, you can't ignore it. It's all Jesus. And that is the Eucharistic life, to see everyone through the chalice and the host. That's it, to see everyone. So, Holly. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Whoa. Oh, God, you are really here. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I don't know that we're ever yeah. ready. That's right. Yeah. Jill. I think, I think we sometimes can focus on 170. I think we think that we can control that somehow, and we have no control over it. Right. And so, like she says, um, we can read our own ideas of what we think salvation ought to be, when we do that, we incapacitate ourselves from entering into the actual salvation that God is working right now all around us. Right. So if we try to control and we try to figure out what he has in store for us or what punishment he's going to push right. towards us, then we can't be accepting the gifts that he's That's right. And the real mark of spiritual maturity is to be able to say about folks who have wronged you or, frankly, who are part of the Christian church but you may think are even evil, is to be able to finally say, I'm going to let the Lord sort it all out. I mean, that, it's very hard. But you know what? This goes all the way back. I mean, I, this goes all the way back to seeing people through the host and the chalice. It goes all the way back to praying the Psalms every day. That's why we always pray the Psalms up here. Pray the Psalms every day. And in your prayers, you actually, if, you can, if you can begin to pray for people who have wronged you or who are evil or who are on the fringes or who, frankly, you don't care about at all, pray for them by name. Not only will that transform you, but it will eventually lead you to say, I promise you, do it for a year, I promise you, we'll let the Lord sort it all out. And that, that's not, that, you shouldn't rejoice in that, but you should say, it's not my problem, I'm going to let the Lord sort it all out. Because it's his job. Let him, bear, let him bear that burden. That's what he's there for. You know? Put it, put it all on Jesus. He'll take care of it. Yeah.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is well said. That's exact. Once you think you're okay, you're probably worse off than you were before. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They are. That's right. And almost shunned to a certain extent. Yeah. 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 That's right. The idea of poor and Wheaton <laughs> would be luxury to most people. Mm-hmm. What else? Anything else from the from the section? <coughs> Anything on the catechumenate? This is a much bigger process, and just be ready because you're going to see a bunch of stuff on this. And we'll, you know, there's plenty of stuff to chat through. And believe me, we are open to suggestions. I can tell you this: the proposal that we've drawn up, the seminary has already said that's the best thing we've ever seen on it. We want to use this to instruct students on how to run the catechumenate. However, as I said to one person yesterday, if we don't do it well, it'll be the worst thing St. John has ever done. Well, you're going to. That's the goal. Yeah. I mean, in a sense... I mean, were you saying, like, we, we would be instructing new people? That's exactly right. Were you mm-hmm. I, that just terrifies me. Well, it should, ter- it should terrify you. That's good, because anyone who says, that's great, let me have Adam, probably won't be on the list to teach. <laughs> but but what it's, what's going to happen is, here's the thing. The instruction that comes from other Christians is not like Okay, come on Tuesday night with Kirby Bruzek, who's going to teach you all about the theology of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, get out, you'll get out a five-word faith by Scott Bruzek from Princeton Seminary. This is, this is the, yeah, exactly. All it is, you're just going to sit with people 
and embody the Christian life. That's it. <laughs> here's the thing. Like, here's what you're going to do. Here's, I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Here's what you're going to do. Like, one example of what will happen is, it's, it's, well, I know who not to put on the list now, but. <laughs> no, there are two different, there are two different types of people involved that are lay folks. One group are sponsors who you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to befriend these people all the way through their acceptance of... So you say, once a month, I'm going to have these people over for dinner. I'm just going to get to know them. Oh, yeah, okay. Bad example. I'm going to take them out to dinner. <laughs> coffee. <laughs> can you do coffee? Okay. You can take people. I'm going to take these people out to dinner. And I don't know them, but that's okay. I'm going to get to know them. They're going to get to know my family. And, that, and we're going to see them through. We're going to stand up at the Easter Vigil when they're received, and we're going to say, yep, we know them. They're good folks. Isn't this great? The other group of people are called catechists, which just means they do some instruction. But it's not, hey, plan a lesson on the theology of the Lord's Supper. It means you get up, and one example would be, you say to them, hey, the re- we're going to sit in a circle. We're going to sit in this room. There are only about five of us in this room. The text from Sunday was John chapter 10. Let me read it to you. Read it to them. What do you think? What are the things you heard in that text? Well, I heard Jesus say, okay, good. You don't say anything. Let me read it again for you. You read it again. What did you hear that was different this time? And all you're doing, you see what you've done in that is you've not done any theological instruction, but you've taught them how to listen to the scriptures, which is what people don't know how to do. No one, I shouldn't say no one, most people in this room probably don't know how to listen to a sermon. It's just that it's an art that no one knows what to do. They don't know how to sit in church and listen to the text. What you're doing is you're teaching them by just doing it over and over and saying, what do you think? What jumped out at you? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd come, you'd come to 12 weeks of classes with me before you do this. Yeah, this is not like, hey, read some text and see what they think. This is, you need, to come to your, you need to come through the new member class yourself and learn what we're trying to do, and then we'll train you how to be a catechist, and then you can go do it. Oh, whenever I need a dramatic reading in eighth grade, it's always Lane. Lane, read this with some feeling. She's very good. We need to wrap up. Let's pray. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming.